Close Horse is brought to you with support from the following sustainable brands. Selena Sanders, a social impact brand that specializes in upcycle clothing using only reclaimed vintage or thrifted materials from tea towels, linens, blankets, and quilts. Sustainably crafted in Los Angeles, each piece is designed to last in one's closet for generations to come. Maximum style, minimal carbon footprint. Picnicwear, a slow fashion brand made by hand in New York City from vintage and dead stock textiles. Picnicwear strives for minimal waste, but maximum authenticity. Future vintage over future garbage. Find Picnicwear on Instagram at Picnicwear, and that's where, W-E-A-R, and at www.picnicwear.com. No Flight Back Vintage, bringing fun new life to old things. Always using recycled and secondhand materials to make dope-ass shit for dope-ass people. See more on Instagram at No Flight Back Vintage. Shift clothing out of beautiful Astoria, Oregon, with a focus on natural fibers, simple hardworking designs, and putting fat people first. Discover more at shiftwheeler.com. Late to the party, creating one-of-a-kind statement clothing from vintage, salvaged, and thrifted textiles. They hope to tap into the dreamy memories we all hold. Floral curtains, a childhood dress, the wallpaper in your best friend's rec room. All while creating modern, sustainable garments that you'll love wearing and have for years to come. Late to the Party is passionate about celebrating and preserving textiles, the memories they hold, and the stories they have yet to tell. Check them out on Instagram at Late to the Party People. Vino Vintage, based just outside of LA. We love the hunt of shopping secondhand because you never know what you might find. Catch us at flea markets around Southern California by following us on Instagram at vino.vintage so you don't miss our next event. Shop Journal Vintage, specializing in upcycled, handmade, and vintage fashion for all genders. Owner Laura makes each piece by hand with love in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. With an emphasis on upcycled menswear, tie-dye, modern jewelry, cottagecore collars, and everything in between, Shop Journal makes pieces they love and hopes you will too. Getting dressed should always be fun. See more on Instagram at shop underscore journal. Old Flame Mending helps you keep your clothes intact through clothing repair, visible mending, and tailoring. Through extending the life of textiles, Old Flame Mending makes your pieces not only wearable and functional again, but also unique and beautiful. This mending duo is based in Pittsburgh, but they take mail-in mending orders from anywhere in the U.S. For more information, visit them at oldflamemending.com or follow them on Instagram at oldflamemending. Gabriella Antonis is a visual artist and an ethical trade fashion designer. But Gabriella is also a radical feminist micro-business. She's the one-woman band trying to help you understand why slow fashion is what the earth needs. The one-woman band to help you build your own brand. She can take your fashion line from just a concept and do your sketches, pattern making, grading, sourcing, cutting, and sewing. The second option is for those who aren't trying to start a business and who just want ethical garments. Gabriella Antonis will create custom made-to-measure garments just for you. Her goal is to help one person of any size at a time, including beyond size 40. To inquire about this serendipitous intersectional offering of either concept, DM her on Instagram to book a consultation. Please follow her on Instagram and Twitter at Gabriella Antonis. Dylan Page is an online clothing and lifestyle brand based out of St. Louis, Missouri. 
Our products are chosen with intention for the conscious community. Everything we carry is animal-friendly, ethically made, sustainably sourced, and cruelty-free. Dylan Page is for those who never stop questioning where something comes from. We know that personal experience dictates what's sustainable for you, and we are here to help guide and support you to make choices that fit your needs. Check us out at dylanpage.com and find us on Instagram at dylanpagelifeandstyle. Salt Hats, purveyors of truly sustainable hats, hand-blocked, sewn, and embellished in Detroit, Michigan. Find us on Instagram at Salt Hats. Wide-Eyed Vintage, a curator of truly covetable vintage from Minneapolis, Minnesota. Wide-Eyed Vintage encourages the experimental spirit of dressing up and will provide you with all the special pieces that will make your wardrobe truly unique. Dedicated to preserving the craftsmanship of clothes, Wide-Eyed Vintage only selects pieces that are well-made, pieces that have been proven to last beyond their lifetimes, so you too can enjoy them for more lifetimes to come. See more on Instagram at wide underscore eyed underscore vintage. Karen Kinney Studio. Located in Western Massachusetts, Karen specializes in handcrafted earrings from found, upcycled, and repurposed fabrics, as well as other eco-friendly curios, all with a hint of nostalgia, a dollop of whimsy, a dash of color, and 100% fun. Karen is an artist slash designer who believes the materials we use matter. See more on Instagram at Karen Kinney Studio or online at www.cKinney.com. Gentle Vibes Vintage. We are purveyors of polyester and psychedelic relics. We encourage experimentation and play not only in your wardrobe, but in your home too. We have thousands of killer vintage pieces ready for their next adventure. See them all on Instagram at Gentle Vibes Vintage. Thumbprint is Detroit's only fair trade marketplace located in the historic Eastern Market. Our small business specializes in products handmade by empowered women in South Africa, making a living wage creating things they love like hand-painted candles and ceramics. We also carry a curated assortment of sustainable and natural locally made goods. Thumbprint is a great gift destination for both the special people in your life and for yourself. Browse our online store at thumbprintdetroit.com and find us on Instagram at Thumbprint Detroit. St. Evans is a New York City-based vintage retailer that is dedicated to bringing you those special vintage pieces you'll reach for again and again. More than just an online store, St. Evans is dedicated to sharing the stories and history behind the garments. 20% of all sales are donated to a new charitable organization each month, amplifying and supporting causes like food insecurity, racial justice, homelessness, and LGBTQ support. For the month of March, St. Evans is supporting the Chicago Period Project, an organization that empowers homeless and in-need people to experience their periods with dignity. This feminist grassroots organization distributes pads, tampons, underwear, and other critical menstruation supplies to local shelters, schools, and crisis support networks. Your vintage purchase from St. Evans supports a small, women-of-color-run business while giving back to the collective community we're all a part of. 
New Vintage is released every Thursday at 12 p.m. Eastern Time at wearsaintevens.com with previews of new pieces and more brought to you on Instagram at where underscore st dot evens. That's at where St. Evans. Shop vintage, do good, and wear St. Evans. Blank Cass, or Blanket Coats by Cass, is focused on restoring, renewing, and reviving the history held within vintage and heirloom textiles by embodying the love, craft, and energy that is original to each vintage textile as I transfer it into a new garment, I hope we can reteach ourselves to care for and mend what we have and make it last. Blank Cass lives on Instagram at blank underscore Cass, and a website will be launched soon at blankcass.com. Welcome to Clothes Horse, the podcast that is getting really good at finding ringing phone sounds on the internet for free. (laughs) I'm your host, Amanda. This is episode 65, and MP of Ungarbage is back for part two of our conversation. We'll be talking about something very important today, how to speak to people, especially on social media, who have different views from you. This is no easy feat. I know this firsthand, but it's so relevant, more relevant than ever, as we find more and more conversations about politics, ethics, the environment, anything you can think of happening on social media rather than in real life. And some of that is a function of the pandemic, sure, but we know that even as far back as the 2016 election, so much of the dialogue was happening on social media, maybe a little bit more on Facebook back then, but man, Instagram, so many conversations happening on Instagram. I love it, but we've really seen an evolution there and it's a hard way to talk to one another. So we'll be talking about that. We'll also be discussing performance reviews. It was kind of random. It came up, but it all makes sense when you hear it together. And (laughs) this is totally unrelated to the other two things I just mentioned, but yet once again, makes sense. We'll be talking about the theory that life is just a simulation. And yeah, I know that's a random one, but I promise it's really interesting. We're hitting all the hot topics today. I also have a message in this episode from Erin the Librarian with her thoughts about Consumption Month. But first... I must remind you, as I do in every episode, that if you're interested in supporting my work on Clothes Horse via Patreon, you can find out more at patreon.com slash clotheshorsepodcast. You can also send a direct donation via Venmo to at crystal underscore visions. And thank you, as always, to everyone who supports my work here on Instagram, the videos I'm making, the blog, all that stuff. Thank you so much. All of your support allows me to hopefully someday make Clothes Horse my actual real paying job. And you make my dream feel a little bit closer. And that means so much to me. So thank you. 
By the time you hear this episode, the application process for the residencies at closehorse.world will be officially underway. You can check out the job descriptions as well as the application. It's not too bad, I promise, at closehorse.world. These roles, I cannot underscore this enough, are essential to growing the blog, to reaching more people, and continuing to give a platform to all the talented people in our community. So please stroll on over to closehorse.world to check it out. Did you hear that? Why, is that the sound of a free ringtone that I found on the internet? Or is the clothes horse hotline ringing? It's Erin, the librarian, with some thoughts about Consumption Month. Hey, Amanda, Erin, the librarian again. I'm so flattered you think I should have a regular column. (laughs) Uh, But I don't want to be seen as someone who would hog the mic if there are other voices to be heard. Um, But since it's Consumption Month, and I know you love a theme, um, I have a follow-up for my last message. So anyways, I thought I was doing really well taking a break from um, clothes shopping after going nuts post-miscarriage. And then this winter, I came down with some rando like gastrointestinal issue. Um, I have an appointment with a specialist coming up. And in the meantime, I've cut out like all added sugar. I've cut back on coffee and I'm taking a break from alcohol. Um, It's been really aggravating since like I've been trying to pivot away from shopping and finding other sources of joy. Like, you know, enjoying a nice IPA from a local brewery or... Um, baking and having a slice of like homemade banana bread. Um, And by the way, I loved reading all the suggestions um, from the Anti-Brunch Society. Um, Anyways, last night I was feeling good and I decided to have a handful of potato chips since I was craving something salty. Big mistake. Um, And this morning I was really annoyed and I just like immediately started browsing for bathing suits online. Do I need a bathing suit? No, like I have two already. I don't need any more apparel, and I'm really trying to take a break from clothes shopping, um, whether it's secondhand or new. Um, and this brings up two things in my mind. One is that, like, once I was feeling upset, like, this morning, I immediately started um, browsing clothes online. Like, I did it without even, like, thinking about it. Um, the second is that um, I try to justify every purchase in my mind, um, even though I really don't need it or need anything right now for that matter. Um, for example, the last thing I bought were a couple of cotton summer dresses. Um, after hearing that I will still like be most likely working from home this summer where I don't have AC, um, I made the purchase. Um, I probably could have made do without them, but in my mind, in that moment, I made the justification in my head that I absolutely must have them. Um, Anyways, if anyone out there has a connection to someone who studied the psychology of shopping, like I'm all ears. And if you're someone who is in a similar situation and has made a a break from shopping, like I'd love to hear from you personally. Um, You know, I I think I'm doing a lot better with the shopping um, than I once was and listening to Clothes Horse has definitely helped. Um, And thank you, Amanda. Uh, But man, the struggle is really real. Um, And um, yeah, anyways, I hope everyone is doing well. Uh, Bye for now. I don't know if Erin and I are just kindred spirits or if everything she describes is a universal feeling. Please, all of you, tell me which one it is. But I always see a direct link between my need to buy something and how I'm feeling mentally or physically. Erin, I want you to know that I have been down this brutal stomach stuff road for years now. Ask me about pooping into tiny plastic cups and then dropping it all into a FedEx box. Yeah, that's a weird thing. And as I dropped off that box in the FedEx bin outside a bank, I laughed at the idea of being robbed for a box of poop in really expensive plastic cups. Anyway, (laughs) I remember during the peak of my like 
oh my God, my stomach's hurt so bad and I can only eat like five foods per my doctor. During that time period, my shopping was out of control. Like maybe the only time in my life I've actually been embarrassed about it and potentially hiding it a little bit. But I also at the same time was working at one of the worst jobs I've ever had. And I think all of that was connected. But no matter what, I felt like crap every day. I couldn't eat like most things. And yeah, I was buying all kinds of stuff I didn't like and returning it like crazy. You know, we're humans and we want quick fixes to things, right? That's why a lot of us shop when we're feeling bad. For a moment, it feels like an easy and effective fix, but... We know it really never ends up being that way. And I also think we want a quick fix to curbing our consumption. Like we could just flip a switch, take a pill. I don't know, like someone could say, here are five easy tricks to never overshop again. And we would follow them and that would be that. But it's not going to be quick and easy because as we've talked about throughout this month, We've been engaging in these habits our entire lives. It's going to be hard. It's going to take effort and we will all mess it up sometimes. But the best thing we can do is be honest about this process with both ourselves and those in our lives. Like tell your friends, tell your loved ones. It feels weird. It feels awkward to be like, hey, I am trying to buy less. Like, please support me in that by, you know, not encouraging me to buy stuff or helping me talk it through when I think I'm going to buy something, maybe just listening to me talk about it. That's what we need to do. And we need to share our stories with others so that they too can begin that process of buying less. You know, consumption month is winding down to a close, but you have a couple more days to send me your messages and stories regarding consumption. I mean, to be fair, we'll probably be talking about this forever. It's a common part of what we talk about here in the Clothes Horse universe. But if you'd like to get your message out to everyone before the end of this month, most people call it March, we call it Consumption Month, give me a call over the next couple days or send me an email. Like if you call by Tuesday, I can put it in our final episode of Consumption Month on Wednesday. The number for the hotline is in the show notes. So go check that out and make us make a call. Or you can email me either like an actual typed out version of your story or a voice memo that you've recorded on your phone or computer. You can send that to me at amanda at closehorse.world. Well, while I'm here, I guess I should probably tell you April's theme at Close Horse so you can start thinking about that. It's capitalism. Specifically, how have the constraints of capitalism affected how you live? the quality of your life, your creative endeavors. I can't wait to hear all of your stories about this. We see a lot of memes about capitalism on Instagram. We hear the term anti-capitalist thrown around a lot. If you spend as much time on Reddit as I do, you see it all the time. But do we really know what capitalism is? We know that we don't like it, but do we know what it really is and how it affects us? I'll be talking about that throughout the month along with explaining like, WTF does it mean to be anti-capitalist and what's the alternative to capitalism and so much more. So do you have a question, a story? Send it my way. Erin, I hope you're working on a message for us. I want to talk to you a bit more about the Uyghur Muslims, China, and 
lots and lots of the biggest brands and retailers we know. I covered a lot of what I'm about to say in Friday night's Instagram Live, but there's going to be even more information here. You might want to skip forward if you heard my conversation on Friday night, or you might want to hear it again so you can memorize all the facts to better educate those around you. But you know I'm committed to talking about the Uyghur Muslims as much as possible until we see a significant change there. I'm assuming that by now most of you know who the Uyghurs are, but let's just do a refresher anyway. It doesn't hurt. And if you already know all of this, then you can have that moment of being like, oh my God, I know so much stuff. I'm so smart. So the Uyghurs are a mostly Muslim Turkic ethnicity who regard themselves as culturally and ethnically close to Central Asian nations. The majority live in Xinjiang, which we're going to talk about Xinjiang so much in the next few minutes. And there are about 11 million of them living there. Xinjiang is currently designated as an autonomous region within China, like Tibet to itself. But in reality, this province, Xinjiang, has little autonomy from the Chinese state. And as I was talking about this on Friday night in the Instagram Live, I started to realize, I mean, sometimes you just have to hear yourself say it out loud, that this story was very similar to the story of Tibet in many ways. So let's talk about Tibet for a moment, which like Xinjiang is called an autonomous state, which implies a certain level of freedom that it does not in fact have. Depending on your age or how much you love the 90s, maybe how many of those like 90s VH1 specials you've watched, you might remember 90s celebrities taking up the cause of freeing Tibet, especially the Beastie Boys. I know they had a, like a festival that was a fundraiser. There were albums that came out. They were always on MTV talking about it. But I feel like we don't talk about Tibet that much these days. And as I researched what I wanted to say about Tibet for this episode, I realized we should still be talking about Tibet as well. So in 1950, we're traveling back in time here, a long time ago, Radio Beijing, which is the official radio station of the Chinese Communist regime, announced the task of the People's Liberation Army for 1950 is to liberate Tibet. In October of that year, of 1950, 40,000 Chinese troops invaded Tibet. China wanted Tibet for two major reasons. One, its proximity to India gave them a military advantage, you know, getting a little bit closer to India to kind of keep an eye on what was going on there. And two, and this is a really big one that I think a lot of people underestimated for a long time. Tibet has vast natural resources, including huge amounts of copper, lithium, gold, and silver that have never been mined. Because the Tibets don't mine their land. It's sacred to them. It's against their religious practices to disturb the ground. So it's just this massive fortune in natural resources just sitting under the ground waiting for someone to take it away. Or at least that's how China viewed it. Most recently, China has been doing a ton of mining on all that sacred Tibetan land. Throughout the 50s, as Tibet struggled to free itself from China, members of the resistance were brutalized and murdered. Through the 60s, 
China's catastrophic campaign to rapidly transform this farming economy. That's what Tibet was. It was a very religious country that survived by farming, you know, both growing things and raising animals. Well, China was like, no, we're going to turn you into a communist society. And what happened is this led to the deaths of hundreds of thousands of Tibetan peasants and nomads. Some died of starvation. Some were killed by the government. Thousands of monasteries were also destroyed by the Chinese during this period because I think it's really important to reiterate that China has no tolerance for religion. This is pretty common in a purely communist country because religion can, you know, detract from the mission of a communist country. It can be a distraction. It can lead to revolution. It was in China's best interest to snuff out Tibetan Buddhism. In the 70s, China got really serious about ridding Tibet of religion. Even more monasteries and sacred sites were destroyed. Tens of thousands of monks were forced to secularize, marry, or be sent to labor camps. In the 90s, continuing to now, an aggressive, quote, re-education campaign was used against the Tibetans, forbidding them from speaking their native language, practicing religion, and so on. As of 2019, satellite footage showed at least three internment camps, otherwise known as concentration camps, under construction in Tibet, ostensibly to become the sites of more aggressive, quote, re-education. Historical data has shown that from China's initial invasion of Tibet in 1950 to the end of 1979, so a space of about 30 years, China caused a total of 1.2 million deaths in Tibet, accounting for 20% of the entire Tibetan population. That's disturbing, and I feel like it doesn't get talked about enough. And I just want to remind you that I just said a minute ago that in 2019, satellite footage showed that more of these re-education camps were being built in Tibet. So that fight is not over, and those people are still struggling. China has a record here, and I would bet that if the internet had been around in the 90s, we would have seen way more evidence of all of this happening as it was happening. So we don't even know the full story of everything that's happened over the past decades because the technology just wasn't good enough to sort of smuggle information out of there. Since the 90s, the Chinese government has also been gradually eroding the rights and independence of the Uyghurs. In 2017, President Xi Jinping issued a directive that, quote, religions in China must be Chinese in orientation and, quote, adapt themselves to socialist society. The directive led to, almost immediately, a fresh crackdown on religious practice that particularly affected the Uyghurs, but no doubt also the Tibetan Buddhists, as we see these re-education camps under construction there as well. According to a BBC report, Xinjiang is now covered by a massive network of surveillance, including police, checkpoints, and cameras that scan everything from license plates to individual faces. Since 2017, the year of that directive, more than a million Uyghurs and members of other Turkic Muslim minorities have disappeared into this network of so-called 
re-education camps in the far west region of Xinjiang. Experts call it a, quote, systematic government-led program of cultural genocide. Within the camps, the detainees are subjected to political indoctrination. They're forced to renounce their religion and their culture. And they are also subject to torture. Survivors report experiencing electrocution, waterboarding, beatings, stress positions, and injections of unknown substances. There's also a great deal of sexual assault happening. The re-education campaign appears to be entering a new phase, according to experts, as the Chinese government has now declared that a lot of the trainees have graduated. Evidence indicates that these so-called graduated trainees, the Uyghurs, are being forced to work in factories both within Xinjiang and across the country. They're literally being sent across the country in trains to work in other factories. At some point, the Chinese government realized the financial value of all this free labor, and they want to make the most of it. And, you know, we're going to get into this a lot more in Capitalism Month, but it's important to remember that from an economic perspective, especially if you're a big corporation or a country, people are an asset. They're also a resource in the same way that a house or a building can be an asset and trees and water can be resources. People as workers are resources and assets. And the cheaper they are, the better it is for making money, right? And it's almost like they become a more valuable asset when you don't have to pay them. And I just want to remind you that free labor, forced labor, unpaid labor, whatever you want to call it, it's all slavery. To say that this is not a good situation for the Uyghurs would be a massive understatement. They're ripped away from their families. They live under extremely heavy surveillance. They have very little freedom of movement, and they are unpaid for their work. I've talked about this organization in the past, the Australian Strategic Policy Institute, ASPI, but they've been doing for years now a lot of work into what's happening to the Uyghurs. They've identified 27 factories in nine Chinese provinces that have been using Uyghur labor transferred from Xinjiang since 2017. These factories claim to be part of the supply chain of 82 well-known global brands. And to be clear, the assumption is that when these prisoners are shifted into these factories, they are not being paid for their work. Like I said, these factories claim to be part of the supply chains of many, many well-known brands, including Nike and Zara. The ASPI has solid proof that products from both of these brands were manufactured in factories using forced Uyghur labor, but both continue to deny it. Put a pin in that. We're going to come back to that specifically. Well, for both those brands, but I have a lot to say about Nike. But then there's the problem of the cotton. In January, the United States banned cotton from Xinjiang. And this is not a small thing because the Xinjiang region produces more than 20% of the world's cotton and 84% of China's cotton. And that's a big deal because a lot of cotton clothes are made in China. The odds are high that a cotton garment with a made-in-China label is linked to Uyghur slave labor. 
So the U.S. banned cotton and cotton clothing from Xinjiang. And this decision, this ban was put in place by the Trump administration. And while I know that they didn't do it because they were trying to be ethical or take a stand on human rights, they really did it because they were just trying to get into some sort of trade war or real war with China. I will take this as a small win, even if I don't agree with why they did it. However, it's not the epic win that it might seem like because China supplies a substantial portion of the cotton for all of the clothes and textiles made in Asia. So if you buy a shirt, for example, made in Vietnam, there's still a very large chance that it was made from cotton from Xinjiang. The same goes for clothing from Indonesia, Bangladesh, Pakistan, and the Philippines. Here's the catch. Garments made in other countries, the ones I just listed, that use Chinese cotton are not banned. Because to be honest, there's no way that anyone would even know that. But the odds are very high that if you buy a, a cotton shirt from, say, Bangladesh, it's made with Chinese cotton. And I would just say, this is just speculation, knowing how the world works and how the industry works, that China is saying, okay, we're seeing now that sales of cotton garments made here are plummeting because of these bans. So what we're going to do is we're going to push more of our cotton outside the country. So now the chance that a cotton garment that you bought from any of these other Asian countries being made of Chinese cotton that was, you know, cultivated and processed by slave labor, it's even higher. Like, probably it's made of Uyghur cotton. The ASPI, that's the Australian Strategic Policy Institute, along with many other industry watchdogs, believes that this so-called tainted cotton has made its way into just about every major brand supply chain and has been there for several years, since probably about 2017 or 2018. According to the Clean Clothes Campaign, one in five cotton garments made in this world right now are tainted by cotton cultivated with Uyghur forced labor. So we've talked about a lot of this in the past, but let's talk about what's happening now. This week, a lot of stuff happened, or it's like it didn't happen, but it kind of happened. I don't know. It sounded like a lot, but then it really wasn't, but then it was. You be the judge. So last September, H&M and Nike issued statements condemning the use of forced labor and vowing not to use it. And I don't know if they like these were official like press statements, but they were on their website, you know, and a lot of other retailers and brands did the same thing, kind of like cover your ass situation, right? Like I said, Nike did this too. And I want to take a moment to talk about Nike. So remember, we're going to talk about H&M in a minute, but we're going to talk about Nike right now. ASPI has very clear evidence that Nike, at least as recently as early 2020, meaning a year ago, was manufacturing in factories that used Uyghur forced labor. In January 2020, around 600 female Uyghur workers from Xinjiang were currently working in a massive factory complex whose primary customer is Nike. There were other employees too, of course, but still 600 of these Uyghur workers as well. In fact, 
a Chinese government committee press release stated that 9,800 Uyghur workers were transferred to this shoe factory alone in, quote, more than 60 batches since 2007. So Uyghur workers have been funneled into this factory for now about 14 years, a factory whose primary customer has been and still is Nike. At the factory, the Uyghur laborers make Nike shoes during the day. And in the evening, and we're talking about after probably 10 to 12 hours of work, maybe more, they get to attend a night school where they study Mandarin, they sing the Chinese national anthem, and they receive, quote, vocational training and patriotic education. The curriculum is exactly like those of the re-education camps in Xinjiang, and I would assume the re-education camps in Tibet. The Washington Post has reported that Uyghurs working at the factory were not allowed to go home for the holidays, unlike the rest of the workers. Why? Because they are essentially prisoners under close surveillance. Photographs of the factory taken in January of 2020, so last year, showed that the complex was equipped with watchtowers, razor wire, and inward-facing barbed wire fences, which, hmm, kind of sounds a lot like, you know, prison. (laughs) Weir workers were free to walk in the streets around the factory compound, but their comings and goings were closely monitored by a police station that was equipped with facial recognition cameras. These workers lived in separate dormitories from the other workers. And I'm just saying this because you might not know this. In China, it's standard for factory workers to live on site in dormitories. It's very normal. But these Uyghur workers lived separately. And the Uyghur workers also ate in a separate canteen. They had no contact with anyone outside the factory grounds. This factory produces more than 7 million pairs of shoes for Nike, specifically Nike, each year. And I'm telling you all of this because Nike has published statements for years saying that it does not use forced labor, yet here it is, very clear and obvious. The ASPI has no indication that Nike has changed this behavior. And to be clear, Even if Nike says, oops, we didn't know better because our factory was subcontracting out the work to this factory that uses forced labor for, let's just remember this, 7 million pairs of shoes each year, how would Nike not know about that? Well, even if they somehow didn't, technically, I would call that intentional ignorance because Nike has the resources to investigate and oversee any factory and its supply chain. It's just choosing not to. Because you know what guarantees a high annual profit? Low, low prices for manufacturing. And that means the cheapest labor possible, which means poverty wages or no wages at all. And I just am going to say this again. This factory alone makes 7 million pairs of shoes for Nike each year. It is not just one little accidental order that slipped through to a factory using slave labor. And remember, they have been funneling slave labor into this factory since 2007. Now, Nike has been problematic for decades, and I've talked about it here in the past, and I'm still thinking a lot about what we can do about Nike, how we can hold Nike accountable. 
But like I said, they've been problematic for decades. Ask anyone who was into workers' rights in the 80s and 90s, and they will tell you Nike has always been involved in poverty wages, child labor, and forced labor, among many other things. Yet they continue to confuse us into believing otherwise by embracing social justice in advertising campaigns. What good is it to support Colin Kaepernick when you're exploiting people of color around the world? According to various studies, Nike is, quote, the most trusted brand among millennials and Gen Z. Hey, guess what? That's most of you who are listening right now. And time after time since 2011, teenagers have said that Nike is their favorite brand. I can only assume that most people don't know these things about Nike because the company does a good job of keeping all this under wraps. And to be clear, we're not seeing enough attention to the Uyghur Muslims in the media. I feel like we should be hearing about this every day, and I'm lucky if I see an article about it every week. It's up to us to spread the word about all of this, including Nike, to the people around us. And I would love to hear suggestions from all of you about how we can educate more and more people around us regarding the lack of ethics of Nike. And I know that this is one that really hurts for some of you. Some of us have been wearing Nikes our entire lives. Maybe they're the only shoes that feel good on our feet. Others of us have been wearing Converse since high school. That's me. Well, guess what? Nike owns Converse too. So that kind of ruined it for me. And it's a bummer. When I buy sneakers, which I try to do as infrequently as possible, I buy Adidas because they seem a bit more ethical and sustainable. It's all relative, but they try, right? Okay, so... That was a long detour. Let's get back to my story about what happened last week. So as a reminder, back in September, Nike and H&M issued statements primarily on their websites saying that they were against forced labor and it did not exist in their supply chains. Somehow this past week, China decided to get angry about it. The country has called for a boycott of both companies Major Chinese celebrities have issued statements condemning it, saying that any accusations of forced labor are slander and simply untrue. According to the New York Times, on Thursday, a mall in Xinjiang's capital shut down an H&M store, urging the company to apologize formally to people in the region. Meanwhile, in the southwestern city of Chengdu, Workers actually dismantled an H&M sign from the store because they're pissed, you know? We know otherwise, but you have to remember that China controls its media and internet access very tightly. So the Chinese people only hear what the country wants them to hear. China is telling its citizens that they are doing a service to the Uyghurs by essentially saving them from themselves. Analysts are not sure if these boycotts and bad press will really impact the business of these brands based on previous experiences with this kind of thing, but some companies are afraid. And that's where this story gets a little bit more curious. Zara's parent company is called Inditex. And I'm going to tell you, Inditex has dodged accusations of using weird labor with bold-faced lies. They have been caught multiple times by ASPI on this. And they now, very quietly, this week, after the news of the Chinese boycotts, they removed the statements against forced labor that they had on Zara and their other brands' websites. 
like it was a part of their social responsibility messaging and they just deleted those pages and links. China is not only a massive country, it's also the world's largest fashion marketplace. And Zara alone has more than 140 stores within the country. And I can't even imagine how much manufacturing Zara is doing there. For many retailers, taking a stand against the abuse of the Uyghurs means prioritizing human rights and ethics over sales and profit. Conversely, Inditex is loudly proclaiming by not taking a stand, by removing very quietly the statements against forced labor from their site, they are practically screaming, we prioritize profits over people. Do you need a bigger reason than that to stop giving Zara your money? I'm just going to add in here too that uh, VF Corp did the same thing, quietly removed all of their anti-forced labor, anti-abusive weaker language from their website. VF is the parent company of Vance, Supreme, Wrangler, Lee, Jansport. I'm probably missing some more there. Other brands have been following suit here too, just very quietly trying not to piss off China by removing stuff from their website. And this is a very scary thing to witness because it shows very clearly that more and more companies are prioritizing profits over human rights. And when one company sees another one doing that and getting away with it, well, it makes it easier for them to ignore forced labor, aka slavery, as well. The entire industry needs to see us just like freaking the fuck out, being super angry, super demanding, and boycotting them. This is not a like, well, it's the lesser of two evils situation. This is wrong. The only way we change this is by being really loud and aggressive about it and not giving our money to these companies. I rarely tell you definitively, don't do this, do that, because I really believe that all of us should do what feels right for us. But I have to say in this situation, I know none of us are okay with what's happening to the Uyghur Muslims. It's time to cut off Zara and all these other brands too. It's long overdue. You know, for some reason, Zara specifically gets this pass from people where like, we all know that Zara is actually like the fastest of all fast fashion. Like they literally finish the garments on the boat as it's on its way over from China because that's how fast they want to get stuff into the stores. But there's always been this idea, no one's ever said it out loud, but it's very obvious based on conversations I've had, observations I've you know observed, that Zara feels more premium than say Boohoo or Forever 21. And I would say that's because they have really effective marketing, amazing photography, super talented stylists. They're no different than any of those brands. In fact, maybe they're a little bit more unethical. Maybe it's doubly unethical to be making shitty fast fashion and wrapping it in a slightly more premium wrapper. But it is time for us to cut off Zara. It's fast fashion. It's unethical as hell. It's time to skip it once and for all. Please do not give your money to assholes. All right. Well, <laughs> I am super emotional. So 
I think it's time for me to take a break from talking, kind of pull myself together. So let's just jump right into my conversation with MP of Ungarbage. And if you missed the first half of this conversation in the previous episode, go check that out first. This idea of, okay, we can't really believe everything we see on social media but we're so immersed in it that we begin to believe it kind of leads to our next conversation topic, which is how we create our own fake reality within our feeds. And we live like in a bubble of our own design because, you know, it's all about like, if you like enough things, and I don't know if this is so much true anymore, but if you like and follow enough people that align with your, your way of thinking, you will soon only see that like an example I would give that is outside of Instagram is like Apple news on your iPhone. You can block certain media outlets or thumbs down things enough that you will only begin to see things that 100% agree with your beliefs. So during the last election, I finally was like, I have to block the wall street journal. I can't take it anymore. (laughs) Like they are posting the craziest stuff. That's like, you know, all these opinion pieces about, how Trump is the best dude ever or whatever. And I'd already at that point blocked basically any conservative news outlet. And then I was like, wait a minute. Now all I see is things that reinforce my own beliefs, which makes me think that there's a reality in which my beliefs are the only right option. And that can't be good for humanity, right? Yeah, I mean, it's not because the people on the other side who totally disagree with you they have their own bubble as well. And they use that type of information to come up with conclusions and opinions. And I think that's why we can't talk to each other because we have different, totally different point of reference. And we we don't really have neutral truth in a way. And like even media that seem neutral always have a bit of an angle. And even if they don't, we will use our own bias to kind of reject the news that doesn't fit with our beliefs and accept the ones that do fit. So like we're contributing also to creating this altered version of of reality or, or of truth. We're creating our own perspective. Social media is definitely helping grow it because it's easier to block things. It's the same way as like if someone is commenting or someone's following you and they're saying not nice things, um, you know, do you block them? Do you not block them? I had one person saying something negative once on one of my posts. Like I posted that there's there's not a lot of larger size secondhand clothing available. So if we are all buying it as oversized fashion, we are taking away some of the clothing that could be worn by people who are those larger sizes that want to buy them. And someone commented and said, well, they just have to lose weight. (gasps) And I was like, oh my God, oh my God, oh my God. And I'm sitting on the couch and I'm like, okay, this is the moment where I enter the space of how do I engage with this person in a conversation so they can understand where I'm coming from. So I don't just go like, hey, you don't understand? See you later. Or like, you know, I, you're wrong and I'm right and, and goodbye. And I felt paralyzed because we don't do that a lot. You know, we don't try to go, how can I consciously engage with this person and help, help them understand where I'm coming from? And also, how can I understand why they're saying that? You know, how can I have compassion for 
for them and, and their ideas. And I can just kind of put aside my opinion for a sec and think, okay, how did this person come up with the, this conclusion? And most likely, you know, they came up to that conclusion because the world is telling them that they should be, that they should be losing weight. Like, you know, the, <laughs> because there's a massive diet industry that tells them, hey, make sure you lose weight. One argument is like, if someone wants to disagree with you on the internet, you should just immediately block them because that will protect your mental health, right? Uh, which, you know, you and I have talked about doesn't really help your cause. You know what I mean? <laughs> like yeah. like to just disengage completely. But I feel like there's so much conversation around like, oh, well, it's self-care to just like cut off the, I hate this term, the haters, you know? I also have found that like, you know, when you really look at politics today, I mean, especially here in the United States, there the gap, the gulf, I guess, between like progressives and conservatives is so wide that like entire families have been torn apart. Yeah. And if we can't have hard conversations with our family members, it's going to be hard to have conversations with strangers. Mm -hmm. And I agree that sometimes there's conversations that we can't handle in the moment and it's okay mm -hmm. to like protect our mental health and not engage. Um, and I think the practice is to try to like engage in conversations from a place of curiosity instead of from a place of judgment. So like mm -hmm. instead of talking to someone to prove that we're right or to defend our idea or to prove that they are wrong, then how can we just get curious about why they're thinking that, you know? Um, I I had a conversation once with um, a, a woman I did a course with and she was saying that she doesn't want, she lives in Germany and she doesn't want immigrants to, more immigrants to come to the country because it's not a good thing and like they should be more blocked and they should have more regulations so they don't, um, they don't let them in and all of that. And I thought, oh, but I'm for it because some people come from countries where they need, you know, they need to to move somewhere else. Otherwise, they're in danger and they already don't have anything. So if we're able to help them, we have to welcome them to our country. And so we've had this whole conversation of like, we totally don't agree on a huge idea. And I just was like, okay, well, what makes you feel like they like we should have those regulations and she ended up talking about how she saw on the news that the immigrants didn't have jobs and they created more crime and like you know there was more sexual assaults in her neighborhood and she was really worried and so then it was like easier to understand her point of view because it's like okay she lives in a town where these things happen and it put her in a place of fear that this could happen to her as well so then the first thing she came up with is like oh, well, if they weren't here before they weren't here and we didn't have that problem, so they are the problem, you know? And then mm -hmm. I started to say, well, you know, some people might do that, but some people might not. And also you don't know kind of what they've been through. And instead of instead of making sure they don't come into your country, maybe you can have programs that support them, teach them the language, teach them some basic skills that they might need to then have jobs that if they can afford, you know, a place to stay and food, they're not going to have to go to the store and steal food. Like people steal because they have no choice. Like not a lot of people steal for fun. Mm -hmm. So then she was like, oh yeah, maybe there's other options to, to solve this fear of, of what's happening here. So then we were able to kind of reach a middle ground of like, 
there's there's more work that needs to be done, but let's get creative and let's find some ideas, even though we're not going to solve this problem. But, you know, <laughs> it's just an example instead of going like, well, and, and it was interesting because the exercise was first to start by saying like, I think it's incredibly selfish that you're thinking that way and na 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 and just being like a regular, let's say, social media commenter of like, I can't believe you're saying that. I can't believe you're sharing this kind of, of misinformation, like just being totally like your everyday today, like day to day reactions, you know, being reactive to mm-hmm, other people's mm-hmm. opinion. And then it was just like, whoa, I thought I was going to explode of like anger. And then when we flipped the exercise, it was so beautiful because it was like, okay, now we get to have a conversation. I understand her point of view and I, I'm able to think about new ideas to solve this problem. And she also is. And we're able to actually understand why we stand where we stand in a way. And both yeah. our positions are now more flexible. Yeah. So that's a really long thing. That's a really long example. <laughs> but all that to say that, you know, if we can be better at listening and if we can listen for a more curious place, I think we can solve many more problems that we can by going like you don't understand and I'm blocking you or you know I'm right you're wrong and this is it right right which is not to say if someone is like upsetting you on a personal level outside of the conversation and it's really like triggering some something bad for you you should you should stop the conversation. Like there is – like you still need to protect yourself too and people definitely on social media can go for the jugular intentionally or otherwise, right? Like it's hard to say. But like I recently had to block someone on Instagram. It was the first time I've ever done that ever and it felt really wild. But like I thought I was going to faint. I was so upset. <laughs> and I just was like I, I can't engage in this with this anymore. This person and I, we're not going to – we're not going to come to an understanding and this person is starting to pick apart my character we're not even talking about whether or not vegan leather is good or bad for the planet. We're talking about how I'm a bad person who's fake. And I, I just can't, I can't engage in that anymore, you know? Yeah. I mean, these conversations have to be, they have to work on both ends. So right. if you're curious about someone and, and wanting to understand what they're talking about and they're still judging you and, and you know, uh, calling you names and stuff, then then no, <laughs> because we can't convince everyone of everything. That's right. That's right. You can't can you can't convince everyone that it would be a good time to talk about this. <laughs> you know that bums me out because there is this fine line, right? Like there are some people who, unfortunately, they're not there to talk to you or get to know you or hear your opinions. They're just looking for a fight. But that's not a vast majority of people at all. And unfortunately, I think. If you so many people approach it with like, no, this person, they're they're irredeemable before you even start the conversation. So I'm not even gonna try. And that's what the problem is. You know, that like the automatic assumption is that anyone who disagrees with you is like fundamentally flawed mm-hmm. and therefore not worthy of reaching out to. I mean, listen, I have people in my life who I love very much who I could not disagree more with their personal beliefs. Like that is just the way it is. But they and some are not just their political beliefs. You know what I mean? Like they also really love animals and are really thoughtful on, you know, your birthday and like always support you emotionally. Like we can't, we can't distill all of these people down to like this one small section of who they are. Yep. 
And like, we all have things that trigger us and we all have different things that trigger us. So like someday you could be triggered to put a negative comment on someone's thing. And it's, it can be not even that person, like not even the, the specific reason. Like once I did, I posted once like a kind of a bitchy comment on a video, on a YouTube video. It was years ago. And these two girls are just doing this video in LA of them putting lipstick in the car and just being so like I just thought it was like why am I watching this and why are we wasting our time with this when we could talk about like I'm sure these girls are really smart so why is this happening right and I was be- yeah. I was getting so like upset and and then I commented like this was the this is like the the worst thing I've ever watched or like this is such a waste of my time that I will never get back <laughs> oh my gosh I'm really shocked. I was told, <laughs> and then I, I swear, I pressed enter, and I'm just like, "Why? Why did I just do that?" And I felt so bad. I I felt so bad about myself. I'm like, "Why am I hurting these girls? Like, they're gonna read that, and it, it's gonna hurt them for sure." Even though, they, yeah, they, oh, it, I don't care. But like, why did I have to do that? And it, I think it was just me. Like watching something that's not even something I want to watch, so that then I could have the choice of just you know shutting it off. Right. And also, right. If I want to see more of something different in the world, it's my responsibility to go and create that. It's not my place to go into somebody else's space and tell them what they should be doing and criticize them for what they do. It's like they can do whatever they want over there, but if I want something different. It's up to me to go create it. But I didn't really understand that. I was just kind of annoyed. And and then <laughs> after, I'm just like, I'm such a horrible person. So it's like it hurt me and it hurt them. So every time I see a negative comment, I always think this person is also hurting. So mm-hmm, how, can mm-hmm. I, how can I, you know, have compassion for that person? Because this comment is probably not about me. It's about it's about them and their own things that they haven't figured out yet. Right, right. And I will say also, so that that is an interesting segue into something else that I've been thinking about lately when we talk about comment culture, I guess, on social media. Cancel culture is something that really bugs me uh, because I find that often the term cancel culture is really used by people who are trying to avoid accountability. And I don't think there's anything wrong with demanding accountability from brands and celebrities and, you know, just general business, right? Like if if we stop demanding accountability from business in general, things are going to get like 10,000 times worse than they already are. And I would argue that we haven't been demanding enough accountability. We've all been so complacent and unquestioning. Um, But I have seen, so like there's this influencer who is probably one of the biggest ones on Instagram, Danielle Bernstein. I'm sure you're familiar with her. And, you know, she is constantly sort of like, it's just haters. All of you who asked me to stop Photoshopping or to stop stealing artists' designs, you're just all being haters. And, you know, she posted something last week that was like, you know, hurt people hurt other people. And it was like, no, don't – let's not – let's not confuse accountability with like trolling, right? Because trolling is like lashing out at someone on social media just because you're having a bad day or you didn't think before you posted, right? Um, Yeah. But accountability is not the same thing. Saying, hey, isn't this a copy of this skirt is not trolling. And so I, I just have, I feel like I have to step in and say that too, that there is like, there is a lot of nuance there. You in your heart, 
when you are posting a comment, know whether you are just angry or you are actually like, you know, pursuing an outcome, I guess is what I would say. Yeah. And I think there's a difference between giving someone a negative comment out of like anger Mm -hmm. and keeping someone accountable in an angry way, like using, using anger to keep someone accountable. So it's up to her to then see, oh, people are trying to tell me I'm doing something wrong. Right. Um, and so I, I'm sure whether people tell her in a nice way or in a not nice way, um, you know, if that person's not ready to listen, they won't listen. Um, but yeah, you're totally right. Like it's not the same. And it's not to say every conversation you have, you should never use anger. Like it's okay mm-hmm. to be angry. Totally. totally. Uh, we just have to be conscious about how we use our, our anger to communicate with other people and to also communicate important messages. Like, will this how will this be better received with anger or without and sometimes it will be better received with anger so it's It's like it's just for up to choose consciously i think right right and just like ask yourself like why am i doing this i think if you know why you're commenting and what your motivation is you're gonna have a better idea of whether you should be doing it or not i guess is what i'm saying but i think you know I hate to see accountability dismissed as trolling and I think it really confuses people and then if you're if you're a nice thoughtful person you start to question it in yourself like for me when I reach out to a brand and I'm like hey I was just wondering like where is your stuff made or like you know is it fair trade certified or I start asking them questions like that it's always really difficult for me because I'm like oh do they think I'm like a troll like what if they think I'm being mean and I'm actually not just like being curious and I start to like talk myself out of asking and I don't I don't want anybody to do that because I think also as women we're kind of socialized to always just be like making everyone happy and making everyone feel comfortable and good and I don't think that we need to do that like sometimes you just have to ask questions that are uncomfortable yep and I think whether they think that you're being this or that to them when you're sending that email is up to them. Like you don't have to receive that. So if they think you're just an angry person for asking these things, uh, that's fine because you know that you're not. I think that's really good advice too because, you know, I worked for a startup that was very, was basically commodifying feminism as a means of selling products. Like if you want to get down to brass tacks. And so people would reach out customers and say like, hey, like where are your clothes made? Are they ethically made? Like what kind of cotton do you use? Like do you know that it's like forced labor free? And these are all very good questions that no one asks out of meanness. They ask out of an intention of doing the right thing, right? And my boss gets so pissed And she would be like, you know, these people ask all these questions. They're not even going to buy anything anyway. They're just doing it to, like, make life harder. And I was like, whoa, wow. (laughs) You just, like, showed who you are. I think, too, it's like at the end of the day, no one wants to be told they're doing something wrong. Everyone is trying to avoid feeling guilt and shame in every possible way. So if you're just saying, hey, where are the clothes made? Then the only reason why they're angry is because they're thinking, ah, shit, I don't know where the clothes are right. made. Or I know that the clothes are not made in an ethical way. And why did I not think about that? Why do I not, I'm not concerned about that? I'm a terrible person. I'm doing this wrong. And so then they're going back to the person and being like, 
why you why you know i don't care about your opinion you're just trying to make things complicated but really they're actually thinking about it but they're not ready to experience to like be with the the shame of of accepting this information yeah yeah like if the, if this person can just be like okay i messed up in all these things here how can i grow from here but it takes a lot of courage to do that and not just like reject other people's criticism it's like taking feedback is one of the hardest things oh totally i every year of my professional life i have dreaded the corporate performance review you know the annual ritual of what i think is misery <laughs> and <laughs> even when i am like i know i'm doing a really good job i know i'm gonna hear things that i can improve upon and i have to like brace myself for it and it, i will like make myself sick with worry the day I'm going to have that performance review. And then I go in and it's like, not that bad, you know? Yeah. <laughs> I think these reviews are so, th there needs to be like a reform for all these reviews um, are done. Yes. Because it's always like, here's the day that I'm going to make you feel horrible about everything that you do. And then you're just going to go on less motivated. And, and then you have to go deal with that. Instead of like, I used to work in sales and It was always like, here's what you sold. Here's your target. Here's what you should sell now. And so even if you did something good, it's like, well, here's what you should sell now. And it's mm -hmm. way more. And there's no of like, here are some you know, options of how you can do that. Here are some training on how to do that. Here's some support to help you do that. Here's some new ways of thinking. How can I help you? It's never like, no. here's your review. How can I help you? be better in those areas. What do you need from me to be better? Like if we could have that, imagine your boss goes like, Amanda, what do you need from me to be better in those areas? Maybe you have a bunch of concerns and that's why you haven't been performing in those specific things because they're not working or the system's not working, but no one's asking you those questions. Oh, I 100% agree. I think the way performance reviews exist currently is so counterproductive and it only works really on the behalf of the the employer in the first place. Like it's like it gives them a reason to give you a raise or not give you a raise. It's not like yeah. it helps you develop as a person. Like I've never come away with from a performance review feeling like, wow, now I know what I can work on and I'm going to like learn all these new skills. I'm really excited for what's coming next. Instead, it's like, oh man, they took my margin target like 100 basis points higher. How am I going to hit that? I have no idea. When you're a buyer in general, like – 50% of your performance review is based on the metrics of your business, which is valid, right? Because like that's what you're there to manage. But of course, when you achieve those, you are going to now get an even tougher set of goals for the next year in terms of those financials. Yeah. And like no one's there to help support you getting there. You just are supposed to figure it out. So that's problematic enough. But then the other half of it is always very personal and about your personality and not about your work because the work is already addressed by the metrics. And so I remember having this really stellar performance review early in my career at my job that I really loved. I was doing a good job. I was learning so much new stuff. I was really engaged. I loved everyone who I worked with. I was excited to come to work every day. And in my performance review, it was like, you're doing an amazing job. Like, we can't even believe what a great job you're doing. But sometimes you're sarcastic and it's hard to tell if you're being sarcastic or not. And oh my God. I know. And so for the rest of like the time that I worked there, I was filled with this anxiety of like, are people confused about whether I'm sarcastic or not right now? Like, what? 
no. I mean, I think the the performance reviews are just a way to. It's like it's a reminder of the power dynamics. It's like yeah. here's a reminder that I'm your boss, yeah. and I'm gonna give you. I'm gonna tell you everything that I want, and I'm gonna ask you zero question. And I never get feedback except from my boss. Like feedback should be two directions. Like I give, I give the feedback gives you the boss give you feedback, and then you give feedback to your boss. That's how you grow. You know, it's like actually I'm not. Uh, oh, if I'm being sarcastic or whatever, or like then you can give your own feedback. Yeah. You know? Otherwise, it's just uh, everything's lost, and all it does is make employees more unmotivated to work. They're just kind of like, screw you, then if you don't like what I do, I'm already giving you everything. Yeah, screw you if you think I'm being sarcastic right now when I'm not. <laughs> <laughs> I like how we started talking about virtual things, and now we're like performance review <laughs> well they're kind of like virtual in their own weird way because totally. they like like the reality of them is so is so nebulous i would say because it's all about like it's about achieving a goal and not actual like measurable i mean it's it's hard to measure soft skills anyway but uh definitely can turn into a big real life anxiety creator that you've sort of created in your mind anyway so it's maybe not real in the first place i still to this day God, that review was well more than 10 years ago, and I'm still constantly like, do people think I'm being sarcastic right now? <laughs> so <laughs> don't worry. <laughs> um, anyway, well, that is a great total abrupt transition into the last thing we wanted to talk about, which is this possibility that life is a simulation. <laughs> this is literally my favorite thing to talk about. <laughs> oh, my God. I watched... I watched that video you sent me. I read some articles. I felt like my brain was going to explode. Dustin was like, what are you doing? And I'm like, I don't know. I don't know anything anymore. <laughs> it's like every time I get upset about something or something's not working, I'm always like, okay, maybe I am a, sim uh, you know, a simulated being. So it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. <laughs> well, and the thing is, after listening to almost everything we've just talked about, except for maybe performance reviews, but maybe even that. The idea that we ourselves are artificial people is not that far out of possibility, right? Like, we already know that there are fake versions of us out there leaving fake reviews on Google Maps, right? So, like, yep. why not? Why, maybe yeah. those people are the real people and yeah. we're the fake people. Well, I think we'd be all fake people. Like, the, and it's actually a, like it's a it's a theory that's also um that's have been studied by scientists we're not just kind of like putting some <laughs> it's not just theories that things up. yeah yeah we're just like <laughs> ah maybe we are a simulation let's entertain that idea yeah um, right. that's a good call out that we okay first <laughs> off mp and i are not high right now okay <laughs> we did not create this concept we're just talking about it yeah. <laughs> uh, and it's like the so the unbelievable thing about it is that there's a, actually a 50 50 chance that we live in a simulation. And there is different reasons for that. And one is being that the, the codes that we use for like the, the mathematics that we use for coding for the Internet to create different things and technology is the same math that we use to figure out like physics and figure out the universe. And 
a lot of scientists are saying like there's different hypotheses that they have to uh, confirm to know that if we are or not a simulation. But the idea is that technically, if humans become able to create a conscious, like a conscious being, so uh, a, a, even if it's a, let's say we we come up with an AI version of ourselves that has a consciousness then mm -hmm. if we if we can create it that means the probability is super high that it's it's already been created like we're able to do it because it's been done before and not by us and so we could be we could be that mm -hmm. yeah so yeah <laughs> <laughs> well and the argument against it i guess would be that there's speculation that by the time humans could develop the skills to create this kind of simulation, they would have already gone extinct, which is reasonable when you think about where we are right now <laughs> in real life. Uh, it it would be hard to say, like, when would we reach a point? How many, how many years is that where we could create a simulation this real? Mm -hmm. And it's, it's interesting because we're already, we already have sort of virtual realities. Uh, we've already created like some robots. We already have some AI. We have, um, we have created bots that are learning. Uh, mm -hmm. I don't know if you heard about that bot that I can't remember the name of it, but they created this bot and within 20 minutes, it ended up being super like it, it wrote on Twitter or something like we have to eliminate all humans, like humans are the problem. I don't know if you <laughs> you saw that, but it's like, it was really bad. It was like, okay, what bots are learning from humans on the, in a short period of time is not good. Like, well, they, they cancel that. But because we're already able to do all of that, and also to your point, we're already at a point in our world where we know that we have limited resources and we know that there was a time where there will be no resources and like we're kind of at a crossroads of like discovering new technologies and limited resources. And that's in the video, that's why they mentioned as well. It's like some life forms go extinct because they ran out of resources before mm -hmm. they get to that point of knowing the technology to create consciousness. Right, right. So in, in some ways, that's like an argument that we're not in a simulation. But then conversely, and you and I were talking about this yesterday, is like, as our world becomes more and more difficult to live in, we are going to go deeper into virtual reality. Everyone is, right? Because if you're hot and you're hungry and life is a struggle, why not go into this other world where everything is great? That's the part where I'm like, maybe, maybe we are already there and we don't know it. I don't know. I mean, this is like very heady topic, right? Yeah, totally. I mean, it reminds me of, that's what I was telling you yesterday too, it reminds me of the movie Total Recall. Um, <laughs> how like they have these places where you can go and have memories implanted so you can feel like you have the life that you want and you can have all the things because you can't have them in real life because there's mm -hmm. no, like that life doesn't exist anymore and and how there's like real humans and, and not real humans. So I mean, there's already movies about that, so we're already thinking about it. But uh, it's just an interesting topic, and I guess it doesn't change reality. Even if we were a simulation, it, it's not going to change our life. Everything is the same. Mm -hmm. But it's just a it's just an interesting concept because we don't know kind of what's past the universe and the multiverse, and like what is that, you know? So I always think that's like a 
a fun thing to think about. <laughs> I, I think it is because our reality, ultimately, whether we realize it or not, we have so much control over what our reality for ourselves is. And that's not some like pull yourself up by your bootstraps conversation at all. But I mean like what we believe to be real and not real is 100% up to us. And that is the way in which you can own your own reality. Yeah, totally. Because we already do. We we already create it by the way we filter things and our perspective. Like, in, in a sense, reality is a perspective because it's only a human perspective, right? We can't cross-check science yeah. with other beings to see what they're thinking about it. We can't cross-reference uh you know ideas because it's just coming from us so it's like everything is a human perspective so mm -hmm, mm -hmm. so you can choose to live the reality you know what your reality is going to be is your reality all about like filters and the constant pursuit of some perfection that doesn't exist is your reality that you think the moon landing was faked um <laughs> is your reality that COVID is just the flu or is your reality that COVID is the most terrifying thing that's ever happened to you? These are all decisions that you can make. Yep. And also the the important thing is that these these things are not fixed. So it it's okay if you believe something once and now you're realizing with new information that that's that maybe that's not the truth or you want to look into some other information like that is okay. Like we can't always make ourselves feel bad for things we didn't know before. You know, I don't know mm, if you that is, like. Yeah. I don't know if you know about the Doctor Zeus uh, books, like some of the books that are not going to be published anymore. I don't know if you you saw mm -hmm. that on the news. And yes, yes, and you know what? I was not surprised. Yeah, I mean, people are like, "Oh, I can't <laughs> believe the." It's like, have you look? Have you seen the images? Like, have you seen the images? Yeah, and yeah. also, I feel like it's okay. If you once loved these books, I've never read them because, you know, being French Canadian, we only had French books mostly. And I don't I don't really know what Dr. Zeus is. I know, but I don't know. Mm -hmm. And but when I saw it, it's like it's okay if you like something once. And now with new information, you realize this doesn't make sense anymore. It's okay to let it go. It doesn't make you like a bad person for reading those earlier in your life or for liking them. It's like those things are separate, you know. You get to, it's okay totally, if you enjoyed totally. it and it's, it's, it's okay now for them to go. Like, I mean, the, it's their own company that decided to, to stop it. People are going like, oh my God, Dr. Juice is canceled. They canceled themselves. That's yeah. good. Like they, they get to do yeah, whatever they yeah. want. <laughs> and I think that's why people have sometimes problems with cancel culture because they're saying like, why should we cancel a person and we should just keep them accountable. And I think canceling is keeping them accountable. For example, you can cancel your Netflix subscription if the if you if you don't want it anymore for XYZ reason, but you can always subscribe again. So it's like someone can be canceled for something they've done and they could redeem themselves by you know t being themselves accountable, you know? So I think um and that's just my own opinion, but I feel like when we say someone's canceled this is keeping them accountable. It's like, I'm not going to give you my money until you realize what you're doing because it's the only way I can communicate what I think. And uh, if you fix that mm -hmm. and you become better, then sure, then I can I can consider giving you my money again. It's like you can break up with someone because they're they're because of their actions. But if they redeem themselves, you can choose to go like, you know, 
be friends with them or you know be with them again if you want like it's not permanent it's just a way of communicating like i'm saying no to this right now i love that i think that's super true that all of this is a is is constantly in transition it nothing is static forever you know there are certain things like I, i i would i have a hard time imagining like Bill Cosby coming back into oh yeah well, yeah right you can't but come like, back from everything but like you know when you look at someone like Danielle Bernstein maybe she could turn it around you yeah know? why like, not say hey I'm so sorry I copied a bunch of designs and oh, to be honest a lot of the fashion industry is copying a bunch of designs yeah she's I was just working doing for what a they, brand and it was just all we do. did well yeah, yeah so it's like everyone's <laughs> doing it so then she could come out and be like I'm sorry I did this it was highly irresponsible and moving forward. This won't happen again, and I hope you can trust me again, and I will work every day to to prove to you that you can trust me. Then I'd be like, eh, maybe. I'll, at least I'll, I'll watch, and I'll, I'll watch and see what happens, you know? Yeah, yeah, totally, totally. But I think we talk more about why we should or shouldn't cancel people and if canceling is right or wrong instead of actually, instead of the actual issues, you know? I think so, too. I see many more articles out there about cancel culture, arguing for or against it, rather than the situations that are leading to the so-called canceling, you know? Yeah. Rather than arguing whether or not it's okay to cancel someone because they copied someone's designs, why don't we address why the entire industry copies itself constantly, you know, and normalizes it, basically? Or if we want to talk about Alexander Wang, like – Rather than arguing about whether or not you can still wear his clothes right now and if that's unfair to him, and instead say, what are, this, what are the systems of oppression that allow someone to get away with being a sexual predator for that long? Why don't we work on that? But no, yep. instead, let's argue about whether or not it's okay to wear his clothing. Yeah, it's like it's a perfect distraction, really, from the actual problem to argue if the method of solving the problem is right or wrong. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> Well, do you have any final words of wisdom for everyone? Any parting thoughts? You know, I'm actually sweating in my elbow. <laughs> Uh-oh. Does it smell? Right Check now. it out. It's, it's, it's pretty okay. <laughs> you know, when we were talking about that, I was thinking too how my cat Brenda likes to sit this special way on my lap where she buries her nose in my elbow. So she might – she might think there's a scent in there, you know? <laughs> <laughs> I will try to be with it without the, the product to fix it. I'm sure it's all going to be all right. <laughs> just wash it. If it's really bothering you that much, just wash it. <laughs> I- <laughs> uh, thanks so much for having me. This is really great. I always love having those conversations. I know. I know. This was so fun. I'm already like, what are we going to talk about next time? (laughs) (laughs) Thank you for coming back to the podcast, MP. We definitely need to make her a regular guest because my conversations with her really inspire me. And I hope you feel the same way. Tomorrow, that's Monday, my G-Chat conversation with MP will be live at clotheshorse.world. You'll get to hear about why she started on garbage and why it's so much better than 
any women's magazine or fashion magazine that's out there right now. Also, it is just the most beautiful magazine I have seen in a long time. So please go to ungarbagemag.com for info. Please buy an issue so MP has the money to print the next issue because the world needs more of that. Thanks for listening to another episode of Close Horse. If you like what you're hearing, please rate and review on Apple Podcasts, of course. It's like a rule that if you have a podcast, you must say that at some point. And I will also just say, please tell your friends. Tell them to stop shopping at Zara nicely. And uh, tell them to listen to Clothes Horse. <laughs> Don't forget that you can find us on Instagram at Clothes Horse Podcast. And every Friday, I've been doing these Instagram lives at 8 p.m. Eastern time where I wear a dazzling outfit I update you on what's happening at the blog, and I answer your questions about this week's episode, along with, I guess now I also give you a long talk about something I'm going to talk about later on the podcast or has just occurred to me. We've been covering a lot of cool stuff, and you can see all of those videos on the Instagram profile under IGTV so you can catch up. Uh, It's been really fun. If you have a question that you'd like me to discuss or a theme idea or an outfit request, please shoot me an email. It's It's kind of like a different experience than recording the podcast or writing epic Instagram captions, and I'm really enjoying it. And I feel like it's a way that we all get to hang out right now until we all get to hang out IRL, which will be awesome. If you want to meet other Close Horse listeners right now, please join the Close Horsing Around Facebook group. And as always, I'm going to just remind you that you should check out my other podcast to the department. We are in the midst of a two-part a two-parter, if you will, with Wendy Mullen of Built by Wendy, who was so inspiring to me in terms of getting into sewing, making my own clothes, being more confident about, you know, customizing clothes for myself, just all of this stuff. Please go check it out. I'll share a link in the show notes. And of course, thank you to Dustin Travis White for our music and audio support. Bye. (laughs) 